How's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Stupid Questions podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Victoria Brumfield, who is the CEO of USA Triathlon. Um, she actually just today surpassed her one-year anniversary from becoming interim CEO um, with her first day, I think, actually officially starting in December. Today, we're just going to talk a little bit about her story um, from how she got involved in sport at a young age and then ended up working for Virgin um, and working with the U.S. Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee on a number of different races, um, talking a little bit about the Olympics in 2028 and how she sees the vision going to um, be placed for that on top of other things like doping and um, the PTO and age group nationals, so many things. Um, I just would encourage you guys to continue to support that organization as it helps grow this sport. Um, and yeah, without further ado. Oh, and one last thing I have to say. Victoria was actually the inspiration behind starting this podcast. I reached out to her cold after she sent out a mass email a year or so ago and just introducing herself to the triathlon community. I said, hey, you know, I'd love to meet up. She replied, got back with me, put me in touch with her um, manager assistant, and we set up a time. So super pumped about this interview. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, Victoria Brumfield. Hello. Hey, hey, how's it going? Is it working? It is working. See my hydration supply here? Yes, I do see it. Nice. I'm so glad that we finally got to meet. I know it's been a while and you've probably been super busy, especially with age group nationals coming down the pike. You know what? We're lucky in life to always be busy. The day we're not busy, that's when I'm worried. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And congrats to you. So it's happening. You're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I'm um, just, I'll record it a little bit more, but I was kind of recording the intro just to see what I would say. And I was telling a little bit of the story of how it was really that call with you a number of months ago now. I don't even know when it was now. It was probably back in like April or March. Um, and yeah, I decided to do it, write, wrote a list of names. And I have to say, Victoria, I've been so blown away with the response of just how many people say yes to getting on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the professionals, those in and around the sport. Um, yeah, it's such a cool thing. I don't think I could be able to do this. Like, I don't know if I wanted to do it in the movie industry or something. It'd be probably a lot more difficult. But uh, You know what, though, Seth? Like, what's amazing is that people love to share their story. Right. And I think people want to have an opportunity to give back or support or, you yeah. know, like in a way, but they don't really know how. And I feel like this is a way to tap into that desire for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's I've gotten some good feedback so far. I had um, Jackson Laundry just shared it the other day, so we're seeing like a continual uptick and yeah. in, in listens and downloads. So yeah, super so fortunate, cool. super fortunate. Um, so I, I guess we can kind of jump right into it because I know you got tons going on, and we'll talk a little bit about maybe age group yeah. nationals and what's going on there. Um, but I wanted to just kind of start out with the opening ended question of if you were to introduce yourself to someone and they n had never known you, how would you introduce yourself? It totally depends on the context. If yeah. I met somebody out on a trail, I would introduce myself as an avid runner and somebody who loves yeah. the mountains. If I introduced myself to somebody in an event, I'd introduce myself as a fellow athlete. So I think yeah. it just depends. Sure. Um, I think my identity for the purpose of this conversation is I'm the CEO of USA Triathlon. Yeah, for sure. Well, I do want to get into who, a little bit of who you are though. So. Like, where did you grow up? Did you have brothers and sisters? What was your, like, first 10 years of your life like? You know, it's interesting. I don't think back on my childhood a lot. I had a pretty non-conventional upbringing. I grew up in uh, Northern California till I was um, my first year of high school. And then my mom moved us and my brother and sister 
my brother, sister, and I to uh, Utah, and my dad stayed in California, and we didn't really spend much time together after yeah. that. Um, and the whole family just kind of fractured at that point. Mm. So um, my brother, I haven't talked to in years and years and years. Nobody's heard from him. Wow. Um, I think he kind of went, you know, in a direction that was that was just kind of sad and lost. And yeah. my sister uh, has struggled to find her way, but she's a therapist, um, thriving now, living in Southern Colorado. And I went back east and lived there for about 20 years as an adult. And now I'm back here in the mountains, loving, loving living at altitude. Yeah, for sure. And for those who don't know where USAT is stationed, where is that at? So USA Triathlon is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and it's on the south end of what Coloradans call the Front Range. But you think about the mountain range, the Rockies, with Colorado Springs at the bottom, Boulder at the top, and Denver in the middle. So yeah. that's where we sit. And it's it's amazing. We're here because most of the national governing bodies under the Olympic and Paralympic movement are based here. This is where the actual... Um, the Federation for the United States is based. Okay, yeah, nice. Thanks for unpacking that a little bit. So backing up, um, before we get into kind of the more up-to-date what's going on in the USAT world and like you're, you're in that role, um, previous conversations we talked a little bit about just the different things that you have done and how it kind of led you to where you are with being a part of different types of race events and this and the other. From a career perspective, post-college or starting in college and then kind of graduating there on through, how did you get to kind of where you are today and what are some of those key moments that you really enjoyed? It's interesting to think through what are the threads that have connected me from where I started to where I am now. And I think it really boils down to a couple of things. I love to work. I love to work hard. Like that's just kind of defined who I am as a person. Mm. And I love to have fun while I'm working. And I think back, my very first job, I was 14 years old. I just moved to Utah and I didn't have any friends. And to be honest, I didn't really want any friends. I just wanted to work. And so I actually, I forged my birth certificate to get a job. And the only place I had the confidence to go do that was at Little Caesars. So I worked at Little Caesars for two years and I loved it. Like it was just, I, you know, I was the world's youngest crew chief. They didn't know I was the youngest because I'd lied, but I knew I was the youngest. You said you were 14? When I first got the job. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. And I just, I've always loved working. And then in college, um, I love to play golf. I grew up on a golf course. My dad was a, a golf club uh, professional growing up. And so I wanted to work at a golf course. And so when I was working at a golf course in college, um, I worked almost full time throughout my entire experience going to, to undergrad at Brigham Young University in Utah. Mm-hmm. And by the work I was doing there, I was introduced to a company that was producing a golf tournament as a part of a senior PGA experience. Yeah. And that agency that I met offered me a job in New York. And I said, great, that sounds fun. Where's that? Let's go. So I took the job in New York and I just continued working on projects and for organizations that just inspired me and excited me. And I was just thrilled to jump out of bed and go to work every day. And I will tell you, working in New York, you don't see that a lot, right? You've got a lot of people pursuing career aspirations, but really miserable and struggling Mm. along the journey. Um, And I genuinely loved what I did every single day. And I got to work on golf and triathlon and concerts and tennis and all these really fun, exciting Mm. sport and entertainment related properties and um, products. And I just I fell in love with that. Yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit more because I think um, so many people, especially in my generation, really struggle with finding something that like like you said, you are excited to get up in the morning. I can count on, I don't know. Maybe one hand, the number of people, friends who I know are like, oh, I'm excited to go into work today. Yeah. Like, did, did you just, is that luck? Is that part of mindset? Is it, 
What, how I did th- that look, happen? I think mindset's part of it, right? I loved going to work at Little Caesars every day. Yeah. So there's a big difference between working at Little Caesars and working at a golf course in college and working for Virgin. Mm. But I genuinely love making an impact. I love working with people that I enjoy being around and I love learning. So if I have those three things, I feel like I thrive. Now, I've also, maybe not so much when I was in my high school days working at Little Caesars, but as I've progressed in my career, what I found, the common thread is, I've worked for people I really admired. My very first job out of college, I worked for the guy I met when I was at the golf course in in undergrad. His name is John Korf. And he just illuminated passion and enthusiasm for sports marketing. And I felt when I was around him, I was becoming the best version of myself professionally. Mm. And I ended up working for him for 14 years because I I always felt like I was learning and growing and stretching yeah. in a way that there was never a moment that I wanted to leave. And then I ended up, he sold the organization to Lifetime Fitness. And that was this incredible challenge where I was still honing my craft of what I did, but I was also meeting a lot of new people, working in a national organization and learning to work within a more corporate structure. And that was really exciting. And then I had the opportunity to go work for Virgin and Mary Wittenberg, who is, um, you know, very well known in the running industry and is this brilliant promoter and just visionary leader who also tapped into something that I didn't realize I had in me. Hmm. And so I think these inspirational leaders really helped me stay engaged and forge my path and maintain that enthusiasm, which would have been harder to do had I not worked for people whom I admired and and loved. Yeah, for sure. So within that, um, it sounds like over the years you have, through these inspirational leaders, kind of shifted and molded a little bit of your identity or how you would identify with yourself. Um, My question is then, has that journey as you've been kind of, I mean, not morphing, but changing and ever evolving into a new person, did you, have you ever had a chance like to question or have you ever gotten to a place where you've been like, oh, I'm not sure I would really identify in this role or has it been difficult to kind of change your identity or change who you were because you were so wrapped up in this one project or whatever and then moving to the next? So I think that there's always this element in life of imposter syndrome a little bit right depending on where you are circumstantially but i also think i have this um (laughs) optimistic um view of gosh maybe it's just ignorance maybe i have optimistic ignorant ignorance is that a thing can we make it a thing sure it's a thing now (laughs) (laughs) i in hindsight i look back and think like oh my gosh i can't believe i did that Mm. but in you know what it's like for me is that I've always loved speaking in front of people. I don't know what it is since I was a kid. I just loved it. Like if there was a chance for me to get a microphone and just get up in front of a crowd, like I would steal it every time. It's just my favorite thing. And Mm. what's interesting for me is when I get up and speak in front of people, I'm actually, I don't, I don't need a script. You know, I, I mean, I generally like to know about what I'm going to talk about, but it's almost like my energy takes over and Mm. I just flow. I find that flow state. And then I look back and I'd be like, oh my God, I don't even remember what I talked about. So Mm. I think about my career in a lot of that way is I find these moments of flow state that I'm not even aware of my lack of belonging or that, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't be there or 
you know, I wasn't prepared to be there because I'm just so in the moment. And I think that that's where I've succeeded is I've, I've followed those moments. So as opposed to saying, I know I want to be a CEO someday, which I've never said, or I know I want to live in Colorado, or I want to work for the Olympic and Paralympic movement. I, I never really charted my path. I just followed these moments of flow state in my career that eventually built on each other and led me to where I am today. And I don't know what I want to do in 10 years from now. You know, I hope yeah. that I'm with USA Triathlon through the LA 2028 games and have mm -hmm. a massive impact, but I don't know what's next for me, but I know sure. I'm going to follow where I feel impact and um, inspiration and personal growth and development. Yeah. So I'm curious with the, um, cause you said you'd love to be there through the 2028 games. Um, so I come from a background where a lot of the people who I just kind of grew up around where a lot of them were in healthcare and like the C-suite, whenever yeah. I would hear them talk about their jobs, it was kind of this like, oh, I'm always a little bit on pins and needles. And you're like, oh, how much longer am I going to be here? And there was this constant thing of like, well, if I lose a CEO position here, I'll go to some other state. Uh, obviously, yeah. it's a little bit different with USAT. My question is, do you ever feel pressure like, oh, I got to I got to perform this or you ever yeah. is that ever in the back of your mind? Like, well, what could I get? canned here soon yes. like yeah and that happens you know i've been told that 30 percent of ceos in the olympic and paralympic movement turn over every year so a hundred percent but i can't even think about it because yeah. the way i live my life is i just pour gasoline on everything and the reality is that sometimes it creates a bonfire and sometimes it just burns out or it burns down the house right yeah. but that's the only way i know how to how to operate so when I think about wanting to be here through LA 2028, for me, that's because that's where our strategic plan points to. Right. And I think that there's really big impact that I can have here. And that's mm -hmm. what I care about. And I could go down in flames or I could do something really impactful. And what I'm going to think about every day is I'm going to try and do something really impactful. And I'm going to hope it... Uh, Maybe hope isn't a strategy, but it's still part of it, right? Oh, it's a, it's I'm part of strategy. I'm going to hope and believe that it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, sure. Like it could mean that I'm not here in the next couple of yeah. years, but that's okay, right? Because if I continue to follow the same path of where do I have an impact, where do I feel personally fulfilled and where do I have fun every single day, mm. that next opportunity will come. And maybe it'll be back at Little Caesars. I don't know. Um, <laughs> if it is, let me know. I'll come get some pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, so before USAT, were you at Virgin? Was that the job before? Yeah, it was with Virgin Sport, which was a startup under the Virgin family of, of companies. And we were based in New York and we were building running festivals starting in the UK and expanding to San Francisco. And we had an amazing three year run. And then at the end of the day, they decided, you know, to, to go in a different direction, which that's always a risk yeah. with the startup. Yeah, for sure. So anybody who knows just a little bit about Virgin, obviously, like they're run by Branson and anyone who he attracts is like very much a startup visionary. Let's go make something big. It's either going to go great yep. or explode. Um, what was it like getting into that job for the first time? Like, how was that transition? And then like your experience throughout that? It sounds like it was an amazing one, but do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, it was when you hear about startup culture, um, it, it was everything that you've heard startup culture to be. And what's interesting is, you know, my former jobs, we always talked about being entre entrepreneurial and having a startup mentality, yeah. but only knowing what that meant in the context of 
you know, stories we've read or news, you know, stories on what startups were, what it meant to be entrepreneurial. But going to Virgin Sport, it was truly both. Mm. And so what was really cool about it is, you know, the reason why I went there is I'd had the privilege of working um, as a consultant to New York Roadrunners and Mary Wittenberg for a very long time. And so when she was recruited to go be the CEO, I was very fortunate that I was the person that she thought of to go help her build this business. And what was so incredible about it is that Virgin is a very purpose built organization. And so we got to sit around and really think about like, what's our why? What do we want to build? What do we want to accomplish? And then what does that look like over time? And then just go do it, yeah, it which, with the resources of Virgin, which is um, really rare, super mm. exciting, very special and something that we never wanted to waste a moment. And so for that reason, we were just going 90 miles an hour redlining every day yeah. for three years, which probably wasn't sustainable for us or the business. But what a wild, amazing experience. Yeah. How many people were on that team? Well, it, the core team, gosh, I think there were five of us, super small, but Virgin had made an acquisition of a small business in the UK. And so that came with a, a small team as well. So we had a UK based team and then our core um, global team in New York was five people. Yeah. I think I count, but yeah, yeah. it's small. Yeah, no, that's really neat though. And um, it started as two. So five was like, woo, look yeah. at <laughs> Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. So you said like you had, um, this incredible opportunity to have the resources of Virgin. I'm just curious from a financial perspective, you had a plan you're like, okay, it's going to cost this much. Did you have to like put in like proposals and say, Hey, we want this much money to make this happen. Or was it more like, here's the company credit card, go happy. I think there was a business plan from the very beginning of here's what we're willing to invest and here's what we expect it to look like over time. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. I mean, I think, look, Virgin is a it's a smart organization. And to your point, they're going to they're going to go big and make big investments. But the expectation is a return. Yeah, for sure. That's really neat. Um, so then moving in more to modern day, that transition from your finishing up at Virgin, was it like, OK, this is no longer going to be a thing and you're looking for something else? Or was it someone came to you like a headhunter? Like, how did you? No, it was like an epic, sad moment of learning that that the company was going to close down. And mm. and I wasn't a part of those conversations. Mary, um, Mary had had those conversations with, you know, the investment team. And that was a decision that they'd made together. And when my colleagues and I found out, it was just, I mean, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, it was heartbreaking because we were, we were so close. We were like a family and we'd built this thing together and it was so hard to say goodbye. Mm. Um, and it was hard to see this thing that we believed in so much not be able to see it through to fruition. But that's what an amazing experience, right? And and I think each of us have, have gone on to do really exciting new things. And I think that's part of the story, right? Is, yeah. is to then go see like where we all went, like built upon the foundation experience we got at Virgin, but we had closed it down. So I started thinking about well, where do I want to go next? And I had seen this posting or somebody had forwarded it to me maybe, about a chief of staff role at USA Triathlon. And my first thought was, well, what's USAT? And the second is, what's a chief of staff? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was all totally new to me. And the other opportunities I was looking at were all very corporate. So yeah. this was the first nonprofit um, I'd ever even looked at. I didn't really understand the nonprofit structure. Um, and, and so it was just so foreign to me, but kind of like, with everything else I've talked about, I, I felt drawn to it. 
And then when I met Rocky Harris, who was the CEO, who was brand new at the time, he was recruited by the current board to come in and create a turnaround project for USA Triathlon. And Rocky was looking for his turnaround partner, right? Mm -hmm. Like the person to help him, like pull that through the whole organization, rebuild and move it forward. And when I met him, I knew he was the person that I would learn the most from. And mm. this is the place where I would have the biggest impact. Yeah. And I was super excited about that. So, you know, you don't come to nonprofits to make a lot of money. You don't like, I, it was a huge lifestyle change moving from New York City to Colorado yeah. Springs. I never thought I'd leave New York. Um, I thought I would just like, you know, die in my six like floor walk up apartment <laughs> and somebody would find me like three weeks later. Like that's oh, just the goodness. life I pictured living. But I moved to Colorado Springs and realized, oh my gosh, like life is actually really great when you can own a washing machine and, have, <laughs> and like be able to like mountain bike from your house and have this incredible opportunity to reshape the trajectory of a sport that I deeply care about. Yeah. Just sorry, the washing machine thing. And you are you not allowed to have a wa washer? There's not room or what's the deal? Oh my God. Like the the like the one percent in New York City have washing machines. Like I never <laughs> even had a washing machine in my building. I was like one of the uh, like here's the ultimate equalizer in New York. Whether you're an investment banker or you work at like I don't know Starbucks, you're all schlepping your laundry like down the street and around the corner to drop it off. It was, yeah, it was just like and wild. because I worked out like twice a day, I was like doing like hand washing laundry. It was like a refugee camp. There was just like they're clothes hanging, hanging everywhere all over my apartment. I mean, that's I can, just how you lived. Yeah, I mean, I can relate. I live in a tiny home, and our we have this wash dryer combo unit from yeah. Europe, and it's absolutely horrendous. But I had no idea that New York had that problem. That sounds like such a crazy business opportunity. Oh yeah, laundry mats are like on every corner. Wow, that's crazy. I had no idea. That's like such a. I guess because of the sewage. Anyway, I don't want to. Well, and you can't it. do so. There's this this like okay inside baseball, but yeah. you can drop your clothes off and they'll wash them and fold them. It's called like wash and fold service, and then you just pick it up. You can even have it delivered. But the problem is 90% of my clothes are spandex. And so yeah. you can't do that because it'll destroy them. Yeah. So like then you have to just go wash your own clothes or you have to like hand wash or you like. So it's just a big old pain. Man, that's wild. It's complicated uh, being an athlete in New York. Yeah, seriously. Things you know and don't know. That's wild. <laughs> um, yeah. So you got the job then. Uh, you got the job as a staffer first, like working with. Yeah, so my answer. role was chief of staff working um, as a part of the executive leadership team. Yeah. And, and something that's just so fascinating to me, when I came to USA Triathlon, you know, there's your hierarchy of like coordinator, manager, director, right. executive. We had never had in the history of USA Triathlon a woman at the director level or higher. So the highest level woman ever in the organization was a senior manager until I came in at the executive level. Good and now we have female equity, uh, ex actually on the executive leadership team, we have more women than men now. Nice. Um, but throughout the organization at every level, whereas before we only had equity at like the coordinator levels. Oh, good for you. If someone just, because I'm, I'm wondering this, so I'm thinking somebody's probably going to end up wondering this. If they wanted to be employed or work with USAT, what is the best way to do that? Be awesome. Yeah. Be really <laughs> hardworking. Be super smart and send me an email. Okay, there you go. Yeah. yeah, and I will say that's how I originally got in contact with you. I think I emailed you. Did when I replied? Do you remember that when I first reached out, I replied directly to your email. I'm sure it didn't go to your inbox and someone vetted it. But did you see that original email? Oh, I reply to all my own emails. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes like I get a lot of emails, so oh, if it's something that doesn't require a direct response from me, I'll forward it on. But I yeah. typically reply to every email, and 
I mean, I get emails every day from members and coaches and, you know, like all kinds of people, which I love because like, those are the people we serve. It's your customers, right? You got to see those. Yeah, for sure. That's so neat. Um, So then you moved from that position into CEO after how much time elapsed in that staff position? So I was in that role until um, last August, a year ago, actually today. Oh, was when Rocky announced that he was leaving. And a year next Monday was when I was announced as interim CEO. And then I officially got the job uh, at the beginning of December. December, yeah. I remember getting that email. Yeah. yeah. That's so neat. What have you oh, learned in it. a year? What's that? What have you learned in a year? Oh, my gosh, Seb. How long is this phone call? Um, oh, as long as you can take. I, I have learned so much. Um, it, here's what's really fascinating to me. I have so much passion for this organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dedicated the last five years of my life to this organization. And it's amazing how your perspective changes when you move into this role. Hmm. Because now, instead of me doing the work of someone else's vision, I get to sit here and say, well, what do I see for the future of the sport? And ultimately, I'm responsible for all of it. So so where do I want to dig in? Yeah. And where do I want to pull back? Um, and that's, that's what I get to think about every day. And it really changes my sense of ownership and commitment to our team, to our mission, because it's mine. Yeah. You know, it's like you said, like, I mean, I can't even think about it, but like, I'm either going to be really successful or I'm not going to last. And I have to be thinking every day about what's going to be the most successful thing, because that's the only thing that can drive us forward. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the thing that brings us together, that motivates and grows the sport is if we're all united in this together. And that's what I think about every day in a way that was different thinking about being on the staff side, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, you're instead of necessarily the task executor of someone else's vision, you're you're drawing the yeah. vision. You're trying to inspire and push back. Right, and it's it's taught me as well. Like I need, it's forced me to have to be a better listener mm. and a to really understand what motivates people. Because if people aren't motivated by the vision, then I need to better understand: is it a misalignment in expectation? Is it a misalignment in their resources or capacity, or is it a misalignment and fit? And so I've had to take a lot more time to really understand where we are as an organization and what our our constituents, which are our coaches, race directors, clubs, members, how they're experiencing what we're doing so that I can make sure that those two things line up. Sure. So I have um, kind of a temperature-based question then. So if, if um, well, actually, we'll use a scale of 1 to 100. If 100 is like, we have executed the vision. We are where we want to be. And obviously, it's an ongoing thing. So you'll probably never be at 100. But yeah. let's say that that's like ideal, picture perfect. One is like we have 10 plus years of work before we get anywhere close to what I'm thinking. Where would you put USAT on that scale at the moment? So I would say we're at a 30. And here's why. I think we have incredible clarity around who we are, what we need to do, and where we need to go. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a ton of hard work and time for us to really make a big impact. But every single day, we need to be able to measure impact. And I think we are doing that. 
But when I think about where the sport could be and should be, we have a long ways to go. Sure. Like we, this is not the time to sit back and relax. We're a sport that experienced major decline in the mid 2000s, stabilized in about 2018, started to grow in 2019, mm-hmm. and then bottomed mm-hmm. out during COVID. Now we're on a massive growth trajectory coming out of COVID, sure. but relative to where we were before we went into COVID. So I want to get us back to where we were in the 2010s. Yeah. So that's what I'm thinking about, and that's going to take time. Do you think that the um, – because media has been growing a ton, even throughout COVID, like it was growing quite a bit. Do you think that the media coverage – I mean, I'm talking not just like official media, but YouTube, podcasts, whatever. Do you feel like that that is representative of the actual growth of the sport? Like is it an accurate representation? Because it seems like it's growing quite a bit. Even through COVID, I feel like it was growing. You have mm-hmm. KPIs. I don't. But do you think that that's accurate? I think it's a really important part of growth, right? Mm -hmm. Because if the only way that we're going to truly grow is if we expand our current audience and the way you expand your current audience is through promotion, broadcast, influencers. It's like all these pieces, um, as well as that has to be centered on top of access to racing clubs, coaches, like the community piece. So it really needs to be both, you know? So if you think about it, um, remind me where you live, Seth. I Chattanooga. Okay, right. So Chattanooga is a great example, right? You have this really bustling culture that's, Mm -hmm. the question is, is that culture based on the race coming there or is the race coming there based on the culture? And what I would say is they're they're interconnected, right? You can't change the interconnection of those two things. And amplifying out the sport beyond your community is really important to bring more people in. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to amplify out is through influencers and eyeballs, like getting visibility to what the sport is in an accessible way so that people realize that you can do a triathlon if you ride your Peloton once a week and swim Mm -hmm. once a week or every other week, you know, like or basic swim skills, like you can do a triathlon. So I think sometimes people have this perception based on current broadcast um, that it's a very specific, really ultra endurance expensive Mm -hmm. sport, which is part of it, a very important part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And so I think those influencers are helping to expand the visibility of how accessible the sport just really is. For sure. So a few um, minutes ago, you were talking about you get to choose what things you're digging in on, which things you're pulling back. Uh, Do you have some examples of both of those? Yeah. So the thing I think about most every single day is what are we doing to grow the sport? A hundred percent. And there's only like we have limited resources, so we have to stay super focused. So our primary focus right now is what are we doing to help grow the race at the race at the grassroots level? So how are we helping race directors promote and increase participation at their races? Mm -hmm. How are we giving them tools to operate better races? And potentially, how are we supporting them and reducing their costs or operating more efficient business models? So that's something that we're thinking about right now. And we have to expand that out right to how are we doing that? for coaches and for clubs and the whole Mm -hmm. ecosystem. And then at the same time, how are we promoting the sport of triathlon to bring more people in? Yeah, for sure. So um, this is kind of along those lines. Well, maybe I didn't ask this part. Uh, What are you pulling back? Is there anything you're you're cutting? Yes, absolutely. I think, look, here's the hard part about our organization. I think I mentioned that, you know, I get emails every day, Mm -hmm. right? With, and there are a lot of really great ideas out there. And our staff are passionate people with a lot of really great ideas. 
And what's really hard is we want to do all the things. But every time we divide a person's focus up across 10 things, all we're doing is 10 things poorly. Mm -hmm. But if we can do one or two things really well and then build on that so that it becomes like a well-oiled machine and then we can move on to another thing, then that's what we should be doing. And we're doing that every day. There's a lot of activities happening in the organization that are that started for altruistic reasons that probably aren't the best use of time and resource given our number one priority, time sensitive priority is growing the sport today in an impactful way. So we may be doing things that is super impactful to a group of five or six people, which is meaningful, but we need to focus on what are we doing to impact five or 6,000 people. Yeah. So that kind of goes to this next question and sort of answers it, but I think it's interesting. So the grassroots races versus like Ironmans or PTO type of stuff or challenge. Um, are there any programs that help races survive that are smaller or do you cap those based on like how many people they could get signed? And is there a way to get support from USAT in those ways? We do. We So we're, we're actually also really focused on growing our philanthropy side of the business. So we have a foundation and what they're focused on is growing philanthropic giving so that we can then not only fund new initiatives. So for example, one is we created a youth, uh, sorry, excuse me, an, a U23, an under 23 elite national team. So the USOPC helps us fund our national team athletes who are going to the Olympics and Paralympics, but we need to think about building that pipeline. So through philanthropic giving, we've been able to develop this junior national team. That's that pipe what, pipeline for yeah. our elite national team. So yeah. that's through philanthropic giving. We also created, um, I think it was about $100,000 that we put aside for grants to support race directors with hosting youth races and draft legal races. Um, over COVID, we had $100,000, I believe, that we allocated as essentially um, funding to help sustain and support race directors who were struggling. So that's an area of the organization we're continuing to invest in and grow so that we can be a support. Look, we're not the government and we're never going to be a bailout organization. But if there mm-hmm. are things that we can do to help support and drive growth initiatives across the sport that help sustain and maintain a healthy ecosystem, that's what we should be doing. Sure. So along some of those lines, uh, you're talking about like development teams and stuff. Um, for the USAT to select youth to follow the ITU pathway, how does that happen? So it's tough because we're not a scholastic sport. Mm-hmm. So you think about like football, basketball, baseball, track and field. They have these pipelines of athletes who come through elite club sport or through their schools with recruiter systems and universities. We don't have that. Now, we've invested $4 million to become an NCAA women's sport, and we're very close. We've got mm-hmm. 40 universities. Um, so we're in that process of becoming an NCAA sport for women. But when we think about, which is a great pipeline for recruiting, but we need to think about how do we tap into people younger than that? And how do we also do it across the men's side as well? And so we have a whole talent ID program where we're tapping into talented runners who also know how to swim and trying to identify those young people and bring them to camps and see if there's potential for them to, you know, like, let's say they're not going to go to the Olympics in track and field, but they're still incredibly talented. Mm -hmm. What if they could go to the Olympics in triathlon? And so that's how we're starting to think about cultivating that talent and identifying it at a very young age and then pulling them through our pipeline. Um, And we have different programs built around that to support those initiatives. Yeah, cool. That's really neat. Um, So let's talk about nationals. 
Mm. My my first question, one of my coach actually told me to ask this one. He said, um, would you ever consider moving them closer to the south toward like a center of population? <laughs> it's a yeah. selfish question. I don't I don't know what the geographical center of triathlon is, but look, we're a national sport. And when I look at where we've hosted nationals for the last several years, it's been very Midwest focused. Yeah. Um, here's my vision. Uh, it may take us a little bit time to get there, but what I'd like to see is for nationals to move every two years to three or four key cities, right? Like it's really hard to build a big national event mm -hmm. in a city and then just like leave town because it's very complicated logistically. And so what I want to do is build this portfolio of cities where we go to Milwaukee for two years and then we go somewhere else for two years, probably on the like on the East Coast or somewhere in that region. Yeah. <laughs> then we move over to the Western region. Like in, we kind of cover the United States because where you go also creates community. And I think that's an important impact that we can play. And it just becomes more accessible. Right. So that's the direction I hope to be going. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we're working on now. Yeah. For these first two, three quarters um, of this year, how much of your time has been occupied with just making sure that Nationals goes off well? And have you been working with the PTO as well? Because that's kind of going, oh, sorry. That's kind of yeah. going hand in hand. Like, what's that been like? So Nationals is going to be epic this year because for the first time ever, we've combined Youth Nationals, Junior Nationals, which is draft legal racing, mm -hmm. age group Nationals for Olympic Sprint, and the PTO US Open for men and women. So huge. this is a never done before epic experience and event. We have an incredible race director on our team, Brian D'Amico. And when you ask how much time do I spend thinking about it? <clears throat> Probably like 1% of my time because he and his team are fabulous. So I have full confidence in them to deliver a great event. Um, I definitely am here to help support with big decisions. You know, like, should we drug test? Should we like what are the big things that we should or shouldn't be doing? I'm I'm here to help make those decisions. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> on a day to day basis, they're just they do a phenomenal job. They're out there now uh, dealing with the Getting vice ready. president is going to be doing a motorcade drive through across our course on Thursday. So oh, nice. I didn't know that. Uh, we just found out yesterday. Oh, nice. so, did, did she say, hey, I'm doing this and be there or was it like yeah, a request? Uh, she just said they I, the city just found out that she's coming and it's going right across our, our course. Nice. So. These are the things that uh, the team is really fabulous and, and staying calm, cool, and collected and figuring out. And they're, they're, they're great. If you've ever raced at nationals, they put on a really great event and I have full confidence in them. Yeah, for sure. That's so cool. Um, so you mentioned uh, like testing for doping and stuff like that. Obviously, we had, I mean, somewhat of a, I don't know if it's the biggest scandal that came out in USAT with Colin Chartier back a, a while. I mean, it's been several yeah. months now. Um, what is the USAT's place in like, out of competition and in competition testing. So that's all run by USADA. So USADA tests all of our national team athletes and it's it's in competition and very heavily out of competition. So it's something that they do, um, it's extremely rigorous and it's entirely run by USADA as a part of their partnership um, with the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as testing in national events, uh, we haven't done it for the last couple of years, but we're going to be doing it this year at nationals. Um, and I'd like to bring that back because I think, look, integrity important. of sport is very important at every sure. level. And when we think about age group nationals, this is the best of the best from around the country. And, you know, I think triathlon is known for being a sport full of um, 
It's about self-accomplishment and integrity and all of these things that we embody as a sport. And I think that we should have practices in place that promote that. Yeah, for sure. Um, any plans in the future for like uh, focuses and resources put behind gravel triathlon growth? You know, I'm a huge gravel racer. I just love it. Yeah. I'm actually I'm doing Leadville uh, next weekend. Oh, are you really? Isn't isn't gravel, but I'm a I'm a big big gravel I mean, fan. That's, um, that's legit. Yeah, yeah. I've done Unbound a few times, and I just like I love it. And actually, it was my enthusiasm for gravel that uh, created a gravel series for us starting last year. So it's it's basically a marketing campaign for us to promote and support gravel triathlons across the country. Um, and I competed this year. We created gravel nationals actually. Oh, nice. That's last awesome. year, and this this was our second year, and I competed in it, and it was incredible. Like Good I just I absolutely love it. I I'm a big fan of triathlon, but anytime I can get off the road, um, it just it's mentally stimulating for me in a way that being on the road isn't because your mind can wander a little bit when you're on the road, but when you're off road, you've got to stay really attentive. Um, yeah. And I love that. And it also creates more opportunity for race directors because you think about the complexities of triathlon, mm -hmm. right? Like just in its most simplistic form, you have to find a swimmable body of water with yeah. a bikeable road, with a runnable trail or road that intersects with a really big parking lot that has access for egress and ingress, right? Like cars to come in and out in emergency services. That's complicated. Mm. So if you can just create more opportunities geographically to host those those events and find scenarios where you have those, um, those intersections of needs for an event, it's only gonna help our sport. Yeah, for sure. And gravel bikes are like flying off the shelves. So let's tap into that. I know it's so funny. I was my coach has really been into this recently. I ha I don't have a gravel bike, and I have oh my really god, much of it, you need a gravel bike. I know I need a thousand more bikes if I had it my way. Um, but he, it's just interesting because it really what gravel bikes have kind of become were like the '80s style mountain bikes, the yeah. rigid mountain bikes. Yeah. It's kind of cool to see it come in full circle. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot more technology going into them now with. But it is very similar to what original mountain bikes were. And yeah. and here's what I love about gravel bikes. I, I, I've had two gravel bikes now. And I used to race cyclocross. So I used to have cyclocross oh. bikes, which are similar. Yeah. But here's the difference. A cyclocross bike is this like snappy bike that's meant to like go fast, corner fast, throw over your shoulder, like jump over hurdles. A gravel bike is like a Cadillac. It's just like a smooth cruiser and you can put slick tires on it, but you just feel so stable. Mm. So like I ride my gravel bike year round on the road, especially in Colorado. Like we don't have great shoulders where I live up in Boulder. It's a Catch little bit better. Bit. Um, but when you have rain and runoff and you've got that like gravelly wash on the side of the road, you just feel stable and safe on a gravel bike in a way that you feel less so on a road bike. So even when I'm racing triathlon on my tri bike, I will train on my gravel bike because I just, I feel safer riding it. Yeah. I'm gonna have to pick one up then. If you've seen so a good, good. one. Yeah. That's so neat. Um, so actually Seth, what you need to do is you need to get a gravel bike sponsor for your podcast. That'd be nice. Do you have any suggestions? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him I had you on the show and you suggested that. Yeah, that will great. get you nowhere. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, I don't, we don't have a gravel bike sponsor. So yeah, clearly I'm not very good at that. Yeah, well, I, we just got our first sponsor. It's a, a friend I know, but he has this shorts company called Trax. He's on, a, on an elite development team anyway. So. Oh, congrats. Yeah, hopefully that one will bring in more. We'll see. Got to continue to bump up our viewership here. So Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, with USAT 
the PTO, and then you have obviously like Iron Man Foundations, and then you have Challenge, all those guys. How cohesive are the minds behind these organizations? Like, do you touch base with the guys at the PTO? Um, I forget what the CEO's name is, the guy who kind of. Sam Renouf. Yeah, Sam Renouf. Do you like talk to him on somewhat of a regular basis to make sure that you guys are kind of pushing in a similar direction? Like, how does that work? I try to. What What I'll tell you is. Um, what's amazing about being in this role is these are my peers and they are brilliant, smart, innovative, entrepreneurial people. Sam is incredible. Um, just as, uh, you know, Michael Dolst from Super League or Andrew Messick from Ironman, like these are, these are individuals who are growing the sport in a significant, impactful, meaningful Mm -hmm. way. And they all have the same heart and soul behind what they're doing. And they're all just doing it in a little bit different way. So yeah, I try and maintain good relationships with relationships with them. Sam, I get to talk to a little bit more often because we're producing their or supporting uh, producing their event for them this yeah, coming the week, and so that's a little bit more of a connected relationship. But yes, I have the opportunity to talk to all of them, and they're all phenomenal human beings. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, uh, hopefully I can get them on some time to hear their stories and what's going on. Oh, they're fascinating people. Fascinating. Like really, really interesting stories. Yeah, for sure. So what are you most excited for in the next 12 months? I, I really feel like going back to your question of like, one, we haven't accomplished anything in a hundred. We we've like solved all the world's problems. Mm. Um, I feel like as an organization, we've never had more clarity around who we are, what we're doing, how we're gonna do it and how we're gonna pace what we're doing. And so what's super exciting for me is I've had the opportunity also over the last eight months to build out my leadership team. So of our seven executives, um, if you include me as a new executive since I switched roles, six are new. So we have one person who's been in the similar executive role um, for more than a year. Every other executive is new. And so I've been able to build this incredible executive leadership team who are smart and innovative and they're really bought into what we're doing and they have really elevated expertise relative Mm. to, you know, how we were operating before. And we've restructured in a way that I think that we're optimized to really hit the ground running hard and deliver against these priorities I talked about around how are we positioning our product and services in a way that people value and that has actual impact on growing the sport. Like that's really where we're centering all of our time and attention. And I've got great people to move those things forward. And that gives me a lot of encouragement and excitement as we go into the new year. And most importantly, we got a new website and we used to have the world's worst website. So that's just like, well, we'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. How much did that cost? Well, we're actually doing it as a part of the the USOPC has created a new website platform for um, us as well as I think something like 30 other national governing bodies. So we're still at the MVP stage. It's going to continue to get better, but it's so we didn't have to pay anything. Um, it's it's one of the wonderful benefits we get as a part of being um, part of the Olympic and Paralympic family. Yeah. I, I've actually been using it a bit more. I, I check results and, and stuff on there after races and whatnot. And I've noticed that their um, platform, even the back end stuff, has been kind of being built out just for the it's, UI UX stuff. It's been really yeah, nice. Yeah, it's so. still being developed. It's exponentially better than what we had. And mm-hmm. it still has a long ways to go. On that scale of like one to 100, it's probably at a 20. But on the scale where we were before, it was like at a negative 50. So yeah, it's a huge, a huge improvement. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I have kind of getting a little bit closer to the end here. Um, a selfish question, and the host of the or the name of the podcast is Stupid Question. So I, I was going to ask this one. We'll see if it's stupid or not. <laughs> so what the pathway that I've chosen because it's been my goal for those who don't know um, to kind of qualify for my elite card, enter the highest race possible with some professionals, and just get my but handed to me like that's kind of the goal to do that the pathway i kind of chosen is the 106 points at two or more races i think it's at two races um do you guys round points because one of my races is 105.94 Ooh, so that's not a stupid question that's an incredibly technical question <laughs> i'd be much better at asking answering a stupid question i don't know the answer to that but i can connect you to someone who does yeah for sure let me know how much how i need to bribe them not really but <laughs> Because I, I, because I, I was, I was like, okay, this is a year. I think I, I have it in me to do it, and I got one hundred and five point nine. It wasn't like the best race, but I was like, oh, tell me they round, because it's point five. So we'll see. Um, well, I don't know if it's anything like weight. I round down, but if it's uh, purchasing something, I round up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think how, how much is it? Do you know how much you have to pay for it to get the elite card once you're eligible? Oh my god! Can we go back to stupid questions? <laughs> I, I would imagine the CEO the doesn't know this. Unbelievable. I would imagine it's the same price as our regular annual um, membership, but I don't know the answer to that. I'll figure I'm it sure out. I've been told it like 20 times, yeah. but I don't recall. Yeah, for sure. So um, then last question, and then I'll let you go for yourself personally uh, within triathlon. I know you said you have Leadville coming up. Yeah. Is it, there any triathlons on the, on the docket? I've, yeah, I've done... I've actually raced a lot this season. I did Oceanside 70.3. Oh, yeah. Cool. I raced five races at our multi-sport national championships. I did the Nashville Women's Triathlon. I've done um, gravel and off-road nationals. And I did another one. Um, wow, oh, I did the Boulder 70.3. Wow, good for you. Um, yeah, so I think... I'm registered for an Ironman this fall. I don't think I'm going to do it. Which one? I think it's California. Okay. Um, so we'll see. I've I've been debating on it for a while. I think I think I just I need a break. Um, so I might defer to next year. Oh. But we'll see. Well, you could just do Ironman Wisconsin with me. It's a little earlier. That way, we can get it all the way sooner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think by the fact that I yeah I look it's here's what I love about training is that. I love swimming, biking, and running. And I love triathlon, and I have since I started doing them in the early 2000s. And I also love running, and I love cycling, and I love the opportunity of mixing all these things together. Um, but it's hard to flex back and forth, especially when you add in a really big, long distance, like Ironman. That's something that takes a lot of focus, yeah. training, and attention. And sure. I'll say also, I've, I underestimated when I registered for that event, how much travel would impact my ability to train mm. and just my capacity, like mentally. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's like being on the road a lot for work has, has made it a lot harder for me to get in focused training to where I would feel ready to compete. Yeah, for sure. Two questions. How many hours a week are you typically training and how many days a year do you have to travel? Well, I travel a lot more than I used to. Um, so I'm traveling pretty much every other week wow. until the end of November, which is, you know, it's not like it could be two or three days during the week, but it's, it's travel that requires, you know, figuring out animal sitters and packing and 
cramming a week's worth of work into one day being in the office, like just those challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as far as training, you know, when I'm peaking before a race, like last week peaking for Leadville, I probably put in a 15 or 16 hour week. That's super um, good. But on average, I'm probably doing somewhere between nine to 12. Yeah. That's awesome. So are you but, going for- But zero stretching and- <laughs> No strength work whatsoever. Zero strength training. So, you know, like something's got to give, right? Yeah, for sure. Are you going for the big belt buckle or the small belt buckle? So I actually, I don't know. I, I Look, Leadville's amazing and Lifetime's incredible, but I was uh, looking at the numbers. This is super interesting. And like, don't quote me on this if I'm wrong, but I was looking at it to see like, what would it take? Which by the way, there's no shot I'd ever make it. So I've done the race twice. Mm -hmm. I did like something like 11.01 and 11.26. So it's a 12 hour cutoff time to get the small belt buckle and an eight and a half cutoff time to get the big belt buckle. So when I looked at last year's results, something like eight or maybe 10 of the pro women would have qualified for a big belt buckle and two of the amateur women. So my perspective, I haven't told them this, although I'm sure, because I know how awful it feels to get um, emails every day saying like, you should do this and you should do that. But I think they should have a separate women's time goal of sub 10 to get a big belt buckle. Because, yeah. you know, right now, like, obviously it's exciting to do the race and to, to finish, but it'd be cool to have an aspirational goal that was attainable. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I, I would love to set a goal to do sub 10. I think that would be, I'm More not going to get there this year with my training, but it's something I could aspire to. Sure. Whereas eight and a half would be impossible for yeah. me. Yeah. That's, that's a good idea. I haven't done it. I have some friends who have done it and they have some wild stories and actually some friends out there right now who are, have been kind of adjusting and getting ready to yeah. do it. So. Oh, the altitude's it's on wild. The list. Yeah. It's like, it's so disorienting. Yeah. I heard it just really decreases your power and your ability to suck in oxygen. Yeah. So. And like more than that, I think what's hard about it, it's really hard to eat and it's really hard to drink and you have to stay on top of your nutrition. And it's just like, you know, your whole body feels off at that yeah. altitude and you just feel slow the whole time yeah, which is like but i think that's part i mean that's why you do it right it's just yeah. it's stunning it's incredibly like challenging and and rewarding oh yeah for sure so the the only thing i can even remotely compare it to is i had an opportunity when i was in hawaii on um i think it was maui there's this i think it's the second largest paved climb in the world uh it starts I've done it. Summit. have you done it, have you yeah. done it? oh yeah. man tell me about that experience and i'll tell you how i was bawling um, I will tell you that the first time I did it, I've done it two, oh, two wow. and a half times. One time I like, I you're more intense than I thought you were. I will say, I didn't realize. No, I'm a total wimp. I just like to go slow for a really long time. <laughs> so the first time I did it, I showed up in my cute little zoo tri tank, you know, like, mm -hmm. and my little zoo tri shorts and started at the ocean and it was like 95 degrees. And I got to the top and it was like 40 degrees. And the descent was the coldest descent of my life. And at one point I like laid down my bike and tried to hitchhike down because right. I like couldn't control the bike. It was like shivering. Oh, so my badly. Goodness, and, but it was all like tourists in like Honda Civics or something. So like nobody could pick me up. So yeah. I had to ride all the way down. But it was incredible until the uh, the coldest descent of my life. But yeah. but tell me about yours. No, I, I mean, it was somewhat similar. I. I didn't think about how cold it would be at the top with all the wind. Luckily, it was still sunny that day, but it was like in the 40s oh. when I got to the top. And I 
my buddy I was riding with, he did it on an e-bike, and he toasted himself like halfway through, and then he had to quit. So, but he had a lot of my nutrition. So I got to the top, and I was feeling decent, and then right as I'm about to leave down, I'm like, I'm getting lightheaded. And <laughs> I was actually crying on the way up because that, that, it was just so beautiful. And yeah. these, it looks like Incredible. Mars. There's not much oxygen yeah, I mean, compared 10, to what I'm used feet. to. It's yeah, unreal. Like, it was no joke. And then uh, some guy, luckily at the top, was like, "Hey, do you want a sandwich?" And I told, turned him down at first after he took my picture for me. And then afterwards, I sought him out because I realized I was about to be in a bad place. And yeah. he gave me his family gave me like a peanut butter and jelly and a banana, and it saved yeah. my life. Um, well, and Seth, this was also the first time I did it. It was back before I understood fueling. So like now, like oh, in, yeah. like for Leadville or whatever, like even if I'm just out for a little training ride, I'm eating every thirty minutes. But, like, I probably brought, like, one bar with me. I was, like, I did everything <laughs> that's Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Um, it's been a pleasure just to hear everything that's going on. You have my support. And if you ever need any help with anything, like, let me know. And hopefully we'll inspire some listeners to be able to help out in any way that they can as well. So. Awesome. And congrats and good luck on getting your pro card. You've got this. I don't think we need to round up. I think yeah. you might need to round down. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see after I'm in Wisconsin. Wow. Well, good luck, Seth. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much for checking out this episode with Victoria Brumfield, the CEO of USA Triathlon. Would highly encourage you guys to go find her on social media and keep up with USAT and everything that got going on. Um, it's getting ready to be an awesome U.S. Open and Milwaukee and age group nationals and junior nationals all at once. Um, even with a motorcade, as you heard from Kamala Harris, the old VP of the United States. Um, yeah, just thank you guys so much for checking it out, and we will catch you on the next one.